Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canastracy. Hi, everyone. This is episode 23, and we are interviewing Jeff Stockham. Jeff is a giant in the field of early American brass bands. He's the leader of the Excelsior Cornet Band. He runs the Music and Musket Educational Program, plays cornet with Federal City and a variety of other uh, musical groups in the Northeast. So we're extremely excited and honored to have Jeff on the interview and on the show this week. Yeah, and he's got a very big collection of instruments as well. So it was great to get into that with him. And he's, you know, like... Yari Villanueva is he's someone who's his name comes up in you know every other interview if not every interview (laughs) so it was great to finally get him on the show and we hope that you're going to enjoy his interview and if you like what you're hearing there are a bunch of ways to support the show you can like follow rate subscribe on any podcast platform Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel Uh, we have a Patreon page now that you can go um, and get some perks there. You can go check it out. I think we've got four tiers, so you can pick whichever one works for you. And we also have a Teespring store. And all this stuff will be linked up on our website. Um, this, the Teespring store is new. If you want like a hat or a mug or some t-shirts, uh, that's up and live now for you to go check out. So we hope if you like to, if you want to support the show, we hope that you'll go check those things out. Without further ado, here is our interview with Jeff Stockham. Thank you so much, Jeff Stockham, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We've been wanting to have you on for a long time, and we've been kind of communicating off and on during this whole project, so we're really excited to finally have the opportunity to, to speak with you today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. I, I, yeah. uh, I feel like I'm in some pretty heavy company with all the, all the great people you've interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> now we're extremely excited to have you, and, and you fit right in, obviously. <laughs> So uh, I was wondering if maybe you could start briefly from the beginning and kind of give us a little background on uh, your musical upbringing and and kind of what got you to this point. Okay, start from the beginning. Well, I was born at a very young age. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I always was drawn to music, even as a a young child. And I had two uh, old maid aunts who had been teachers in the the Rochester City School District who retired by the time I was I was. uh, Laundry school, and they brought it to my parents' attention that the, you know the fact that I had a good ear and I was constantly singing and copy melodies and so on, and, and I seemed to really like music. But I, I, maybe I should uh, uh, take piano lessons. So, starting in second grade, my parents got me piano lessons, and I uh, I played piano on and off until the day that I passed my piano proficiency exam in grad school, and that's the last time I took the piano in earnest. <laughs> but in fourth grade, I was introduced to brass instruments. Uh, I, I went to the band um, demonstration day, and the band director, a wonderful man, uh, the, the late Russ Masseri, who I played a lot of gigs with in later years, hmm. uh, he decided, since I had a good ear, that, uh, and I'd had some musical background. I knew how to read music already and, uh, you know, and count and you know, so on. Um, that he wanted me to start on French horn okay, because of my ear. So I started on French horn in fourth grade and played French horn ex- almost exclusively, uh, other than piano up, up through high school. Hmm. It got to be graduation time and I had to decide what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. 
And I had no other calling that I could think of. I had to, I had to go into music. It just was something, not just that I wanted to do, but that I really had to do. <laughs> and so I went to, well, what, got into Syracuse University, studied uh, horn with Bruce Hagerin, the marvelous uh, principal horn of the Syracuse Symphony, a good friend. Um, he's down in, uh, in, in uh, Fort Pierce, Florida area. <laughs> After having another, a second career as the top call horn player in the whole Treasure Coast after mm-hmm. retiring from the Syracuse Symphony. And then uh, he helped me get good enough so that I could get into Eastman as a grad student. I did a master's in French horn at Eastman, but while I was there and for, for a, uh, about a year and a half prior to that, I started playing trumpet just because I'd always wanted to play trumpet. Even mm-hmm. back in the days that I was you know, in fourth grade band on the Rust Missouri, I wanted to be Herb Alpert. <laughs> every kid... Every kid my age who became a trumpet player was inspired by Herb Alpert. We all yeah. wanted to be in the Tijuana Brass. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah for sure. So um, my dad bought me a trumpet in my junior year of high school. I played a little bit. And then when I got to college, I, I, I started playing a little you know, here and there. Got to Eastman. I started getting more serious about it as a double. Um, and then after I graduated uh, with my master's in horn, Took a few auditions, and I saw that the folks who were getting those orchestral jobs were completely dedicated to the orchestral repertoire, mm-hmm. and they spent hours and hours and hours in the practice room, learning, practicing, listening to the orchestral repertoire. And I wasn't that dedicated to it. I wasn't in love with the way that some of them were. Mm-hmm. So, after taking a few auditions, I said, "This this career path isn't probably for me." And, well, I started to draw on my eclecticism, how I was drawn to different kinds of music. I played in, in funk bands and rock bands and Latin bands, big jazz, big bands. I was, the, I think, the first French horn player in the Eastman Jazz Ensemble. Oh. So mm. uh, I, I decided that, that my stock in trade would be my breadth, not so much my depth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm good at what I do, but I'm, I also do a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, and and that's really served me very well over the years because I've been able to explore a lot of different musical avenues. I've, uh, to to maintain a career as a freelancer, which I've done for the last oh, 25 years or so, exclusively. Mm. You have to be able to play anything, anywhere, anytime for anybody, as long as the money is right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. That's been my philosophy. I'm I'm going to play anything, anywhere, for anybody, as long as the money is okay. And that involves playing a lot of different instruments. Uh, I get a little bit of French horn work. There are some really great French hornets in my area. Mm-hmm. They're a little more established in that field. Um, jazz French horn, I'm the only guy around that does that in <laughs> local region. But I pull, you know, I play trumpet. All, you know, all styles, everything from, from early jazz, all, you know, all the way up through avant-garde, uh, free jazz, uh, modern jazz. I play in a, in a New Orleans street band, uh, plug for Second Line Syracuse folks, and, <laughs> <laughs> and led by my friend, the great, you know, trombonist Melissa Gardner. And every, you know, any kind of style that uses a trumpet, I'm in, okay? Yeah, yeah. I learned, I finally bought a piccolo trumpet a few years ago, um, huh. and 
since then I've I've done some Beatles concerts and played the David Mason uh, Penny Lane solo a yeah, number yeah. of times, and I've uh-huh. played the, I've played uh, a couple of Bach cantatas with, with groups at uh, Syracuse University, and uh, and occasionally I'm called on to uh, to play in a, in a community orchestra, so I work out my C trumpet, and but mostly most of my work is on B flat trumpet and, and B flat cornet playing jazz or commercial stuff. Gotcha. Jazz groups, party bands. Really interesting. And then over the last 20 years, I've done a lot of performing on uh, 19th century, uh, original 19th century period instruments in the the, uh, Civil War and post-Civil War genres. Mm -hmm. So was getting into the 19th century stuff, was that aided by any interest in that time period or in the Civil War or anything like that? Or was it what you were saying? It was just kind of filling a hole in and giving you more uh, opportunities to make freelance money? Well, uh, uh, sort of a little of both. Uh, my dad had been, a, my, my dad was a big Civil War fan and he would have loved the, the Civil War, but he passed away before I formed the band. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually got into the 19th century performing kind of through the side door. Um, I wasn't, a big Civil War history nut or anything. My my history thing was World War Two and and some World War One, and that was mostly through you know through the airplane. I was in the airplane nuts as a little kid. Okay, so you want to you want to know about Messerschmitts and 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 P fifty one Mustangs and, and yeah, yeah. so on? Yeah. Just ask. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> and uh, the I, I can tell you just about every mark of the Messerschmitt P F one hundred nine. Any anyhow, um, so. I kind of I, I, I kind of got into it through the side door. Um, a, a buddy of mine who also has been gone for about fifteen years, um, a fellow by the name of Tom Mayer, was an instrument dealer and collector and amateur trumpet player and piano player and harpsichord builder and a, and a really really eclectic guy. Um, and I ran into him at, at a gig when he was tuning piano, and then you know. A few weeks later, he happened to walk into a garage sale I was having, and he said, "Got any old musical instruments?" I said, "Lots, but none, none for sale." So I invited him in, and I showed him, you know, the relatively few that I had at the time, and we became friends, and we started going out to yard sales and garage sales. And at one of these, one of these uh, house sales that we went to, um, I found uh, this uh, this cornet. Okay, it's a it's a top action rotary Civil War period B flat cornet. Mm-hmm. And it was the first Civil War period instrument that I had bought. I did not know what it was at the mm-hmm. time. I just thought it was really cool. So, and it was obviously something special. So yeah, I sure. bought it. And then um, my friend Tom Mayer showed me a book that he had. And I'm sure all of you Civil War guys and gals are familiar with, with Mark Elrod's book on oh, yeah. uh, Civil War brass bands and musical instruments. Plug mm-hmm. for Mark Elrod. So I called Mark Elrod out of the blue. His publisher put me in touch with him, and I said, "I I have an old horn here, and uh, and and I uh, saw your book, and and I'd like your opinion on it." So he gave me, you know, told me what it was, showed me a a picture in the book that's you know a very similar instrument by a much better, better major, but Mm -hmm. one that was in his collection. Mm -hmm. And then um, we struck up a friendship, and, and and. so I started getting interested in the instruments of the period. I started looking for them. Um, my buddy Tom Mayer then turned up a, a John F. Stratton uh, rotary orchestra cornet. 
at a, at a yard sale for like $10. So I was off. <laughs> <laughs> Away I went. I, I, awesome. uh, I really started getting into the, just the, the, the idiosyncrasies, the differences, the, the interesting variations of the instruments. Um, the Civil War period stuff was so different from what I was used to playing that it was just really cool to, yeah. to, to, to look at this stuff and to handle it, to, to, to be able to play on it. And after, you know, after finding a few more instruments, uh, I, I, in, in uh, 2000, I did a, a lecture demonstration at a brass band festival at Syracuse University. And it was on the development and history of brass instruments. And I started with, you know, with a hollowed out cow, a cow horn mm-hmm. and shofar and, and so on and went up through, through, you know, straight trumpets and natural trumpets and, and, uh, post horns and all the way up through, through, uh, uh, keyed brass, like the key bugle and the open Clyde and then the invention of the valve all the way up to modern instruments. And then, uh, my, my brass quintet did a, a little demonstration uh, for the end of the, of, the, uh, of the lecture, playing some of the American Brass Band Journal quintet arrangements mm-hmm. on period instruments. And so we played an original period E-flat cornet from maybe 1868. Uh, this B-flat cornet, um, a, uh, an upright rotary valve alto horn, a rotary valve upright baritone horn, all of which I still have, and, and then a I had a, at the time all I had was a helicon piston tuba, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. from probably 1880 or so, something yeah, like yeah. that. And we used uh, period uh, drums that I had acquired at a couple of local antique shops, uh, mm-hmm. low tension bass drum. And the sound was really neat. And everybody in the audience, who were mostly other brass band players, seemed to really enjoy it. So mm-hmm. afterwards we said, wow, that was fun. <laughs> Why don't we do this some more? Yeah, so yeah. I consulted with Mark Elrod. He, he became my my uh, uh, guide and consultant, yeah. and he set me up with a pile of music, a stack of, of charts, so about about that thick uh, yeah. of, of Civil War brass band transcriptions, right? And helped me find a couple of, of more appropriate period instruments, including a rotary valve upright tuba, mm-hmm. um, and then we ordered uniforms from uh, the quartermaster shop. And started started booking booking the band for for you know, Civil War period concerts. I developed several programs, you know, several theme programs built around different Civil War themes. Uh, program on Lincoln, a program on the brass band movement, uh, a couple of other theme programs, and uh, uh, one one uh, thing tribute to Harry Tubman. And we we did up until the up until the end of the Civil War Sesquicentennial cycle, we were doing 10 to 15 jobs a year, mm. especially during the, the, uh, the 2010 to 2015 period, yeah. uh, because the interest in the, in the Sesquicentennial of the Civil War was so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, things have kind of tailed off a little bit now for that, and especially with the, with the pandemic, there's no work whatsoever. Yeah, fact, right. Nothing even getting booked into next year, hardly. Um, yeah. So you know, who knows? I don't think it's run its course, considering the the number of, of brass bands that are out there and the number of civil yeah. war bands even that are forming now. Um, but uh, I, don't know, I guess that that's the story. Yeah, no, how we got all. going. Yeah, and it's <laughs> yeah, just no. one more thing that you know, if you told me 
20 years ago that I would, that I would have been making a fair, uh, fraction of my income playing Civil War band music on original period instruments. I would say you were nuts, but <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the way it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. What's the, what's the, uh, is there a maker's mark on that first instrument that you got? The first instrument I showed, this uh, this rotary cornet is a ge- basically a generic horn. There's no maker's right. mark. It was a cheap import, probably made in Bohemia. Uh, it might, you know, might be wartime. It might be post-war. Uh, this mm-hmm. style of instrument was was uh, common up until oh, probably 1880. They finally the rotary instruments finally fell out of favor, That's pretty cool. much completely. Except for diehards who didn't want to buy anything. Yeah. (laughs) But I do have, I do have a number of signed instruments. Sure. It's interesting. We've had a few Eastman guys on, on the show before and Steven, uh, is a Eastman graduate as well. And it's interesting how the second episode for the show, we did a, a Frederick Fennell episode and went in on, uh, you know, his 1960 recording and, and all that. Audience does not own that recording. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Sure. It's interesting though how it seems. It, it sounds like in your case as well how uh, that recording and Frederick Fennell's legacy didn't necessarily like directly impact your involvement, current well, involvement in the Civil War movement. Well, actually, actually, it did to some extent, hmm. um, and I do have an indirect connection to Fred Fennell. Um, the Excelsior Cornet Band, my group, and we've been in existence for about a year, a year and a half, maybe pushing two years. And then Mark Elrod recommended me as E-flat cornet player to Yari Villanueva of the Federal City Brass Band, which he's just getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, uh, George Rabbi, who was playing with Yari, had, uh, had too many other professional commitments to maintain the full schedule. So I started mm-hmm. uh, filling in for George. You know, became the full-time one of the full-time e flat cornet players in the Federal City Brass Band. Um, and in 2003, we performed at, uh, at what I think was actually the I can't remember which number it was, but it, it was it was uh, anyways the, the National Civil War Brass Band Festival mm-hmm. in uh, Kentucky it was hosted by Saxton's Cornet Band, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I did get to meet Professor Purnell. The massed bands, all of the bands that participated, played under his baton, mm-hmm. and uh, that was one of the last times that he conducted uh, groups mm-hmm. like that. And it was, it yeah. was only you know, shortly before he passed away. So being able to play under his baton was, uh, was a, a thrill. Yeah, 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 I'm sure. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. I didn't know about that recording until actually fairly recently, a couple of years ago. Oh, because really? um, I, when I was in high school, I, I did my undergrad at Eastman, and when I was in high school my private lesson teacher was the one who kind of pushed me to audition there. His daughter had gone there. Actually, he's a horn player, uh, Amy Jo Ryan. She plays in the LA. Oh, I, I, I adore Amy Jo Ryan. Yeah. I took lessons from her dad in high school. All oh, throughout, really? All throughout, wow. I think I started in fifth grade and, um, you know, went all the way through, but anyway, I, so he was the one who said, you know, you might want to look at Eastman as a school. And then of course I dove down the rabbit hole of all those recordings, uh, Fennell did on the Mercury label. <laughs> And I have most of them, and I I must have missed the Civil War uh, recording because I only found it a couple wow. years ago. Yeah, uh, that's so. a, that's that's really a that, that's a a you know, that's a cornerstone of mm-hmm. anybody's mm-hmm. Civil War music recording collection. Uh, going right. back to Amy Joe, I I met 
her a couple of years ago uh, at the Mid South uh, Porn Workshop, where I was a clinician, a guest artist, mm-hmm. and uh, and, and uh, she you know she was just great, fabulous yeah. player, lovely person. So yeah, 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 definitely. And then the other Eastman recording that's kind of a sleeper, I guess, just because it's in the shadow right, of the yeah. first one. But then the Hunsberger recording with uh, Vizzuti playing on uh, was it the Homespun America. Yeah, all on modern okay. horns. Yeah, yeah. That one I don't. That one I don't know. Um, I if it's played on modern horns, I don't pay that much attention to it. Generally. Yeah, but it's got Vizzuti playing all the E flat well, parts. True. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, and then just kind of another thing that I'm recalling from the interview, you said that when you were first getting started, before you got that first uh, unmarked cornet that you showed us, you said that you had. A small collection were, were those just the instruments that you were kind of playing like at the time like that you were making a living off of or were you actually collecting oh no i was collecting i actually started collecting when i was at eastman uh, my my first collectible instruments were a 1906 con conqueror cornet with full kit which i still have mm-hmm. um it has a world war one soldier's songbook in it oh, wow. okay it was published by the u.s army um and uh, let's see. I had for a while a York Professional cornet and a, a, a Con 22B uh, trumpet from about 1922 or 23, which was gold plated and engraved all up the belt. Uh, I've sold those two over the years because I've gotten better examples of both. But uh, I, you know, I started collecting. I got bitten by the collecting bug really mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. I always have been a collector. When I was a kid, I collected butterflies. Okay, and then I collected model kits, and I'm in the process of, of trying to sell off uh, about 500 unbuilt model kits right now. Yeah. So oh, yeah. anybody who builds models out there, uh, don't hesitate to get in touch. <laughs> Getting uh, a lot of plugs they, in this episode. That's oh awesome. yeah, <laughs> hey, that's the American way, crass commercialism. Yeah, it's great. We love it. <laughs> so, but but uh, I've, anyway, I've always been a collector, and I started finding started finding these old horns. I hadn't found any Civil War horns up until. About twenty up until nineteen ninety seven or ninety eight when I got the first ones that I got through time there. But I've been collecting old cornets and, and other types of ones. Yeah. So for, your collection gravitates for many towards, years oh, before sorry. that. Yeah, yeah. For probably close to twenty years before that. So I had a, a pretty good collection of interesting stuff, and and that really got a boost uh, when eBay started. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I got in on eBay. Yeah, when it was, it had only been up for about two or three years, and really good stuff was coming out of the woodwork, and uh, all the collectors were fighting over gross, really cool stuff. Um, for for instance, I I bid on a con. Uh, let's see, what is it? Anyway, a, a con cornet from about. About 1908, something like that, and I outbid another guy. Who you know, he, then he sent me a nasty dream saying, "Hey, I really wanted that for my collection. Come mm-hmm. on, man!" And so we struck up a friendship. Um, he's a collector by the name of Nick DeCarlis down in, uh, in Gainesville, Florida, mm-hmm. and he uh, has a wonderful collection, uh, which he specializes in antique con cornets and antique pocket cornets. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has the largest collection of pocket cornets probably in the world. Wow. Um, he uh, and I and some other guys who 
know, who, who were kind of miffed at each other for, for bidding up these, these interesting instruments, we all got together and said, you know, why don't, instead of fighting each other, why don't we form a little cabal to, to say, you know, to, to, to save ourselves a little money. So if something interesting comes up on eBay, we'll send out an email blast and say, hey, is anybody really interested in this? And then the, the, the rule of thumb was, was uh, if not, we all backed off. And if so, it was every man for himself and no hard feelings. Mm-hmm. So this little group uh, became, we, we, we started referring to ourselves as the Cornet Conspiracy. And mm-hmm. some of the members of the Cornet Conspiracy you know, uh, uh, are really advanced collectors, and you know, way more advanced than me. Members of of the Historic Brass Society, the, the uh, American Musical Instrument Society, uh, mm. uh, and, and and other groups like that. They're museum curators. They're they're uh, well known repair techs like Rob Stewart, Rich Ida, mm. Mark Metzler, and we all met through this through this little group. We mm-hmm. had over the last twenty years, we've had about seventeen meetings, I think, annually mm. somewhere in in the U.S., everywhere from Gainesville, Florida to Boston to to uh, to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, Elkhart, Indiana, the, the former center of bands manufacturing. Yeah. So uh, we, we've been able to see some amazing instruments. We have museum curators who who belong to the group. Uh, Sabine Klaus from the National Music Museum. Uh, Peggy Banks has attended our uh, our. our Meetings. Uh, she's the, the curator at the National Music Museum, um, and then collectors uh, like what uh, Joella Otley, who who willed the Joe Otley collection to the museum. Mark Elrod, who's has attended, and uh, uh, advanced collectors like Tom Meacham, who's, who's an environmental lawyer in Alaska, Miles <laughs> Eldridge, who is a a uh, Evolutionary anthropologist who's retired from the the uh, oh the the uh, what's the, the big museum in New York City at any rate very eclectic group of guys and mm-hmm. professional players like Ben Martino belong to this group and yeah. and so we've we've had the opportunity to see and play instruments that most people only dream about seeing it behind glass in a museum. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've been able to, to, to go to museums because of our connections with various curators and actually have them pull these things out and let us handle and play wow. some of them. Wow. Well, I, got to, I got to play on Ned Kendall's E-flat key bugle. Wow. So, so <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that for, yeah, uh, for, uh, for, a, uh, for an antique brass nerd like me. Yeah. <laughs> where where yeah. is that horn? That horn is in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Okay, makes sense. Do you have maybe a, a total number of instruments that you have in your collection? Uh, between Civil War instruments and my gig horns and classic jazz trumpets and you know late nineteenth century, early twentieth century cornets um, and, and you know miscellaneous oddball stuff, probably. At any given time, around 250 ones. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Are, are most of those in playing condition? Um, more or less. Some aren't. And some, you know, I, 
I only have limited resources for restoration, so the the most interesting ones get restored, and the you know, there, there are a lot of others that, that are just you know they're sitting there. Maybe they'll get restored. Maybe the next owner will restore them. Mm-hmm. Who knows? <laughs> uh, the, they, there's only so much time and money that I can put into these, uh, but mm-hmm. I a lot of them I you know, I own them because I basically rescued them from, mm-hmm. from the scrap heap. Or, or, yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah. indignity they were going to suffer. Yeah. Do you have any uh, any thoughts on certain instruments or maybe presentation horns as they relate to being for display purposes only versus being played, or do you think every instrument should should be having air blown through it? Well, I'm kind of kind of both. Yeah. There are instruments that are important historical artifacts. Okay, that should be behind glass. They should be maintained, lubricated, so that they don't become instrument-shaped objects. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when an instrument sits for a long time, it dries out, moisture gets in, the, the tube seize up, the valve seize. You know, they need to be maintained. Okay, But some of them are too valuable and too important to be played more than very occasionally. Okay, and I've, I've had the opportunity to play some very important instruments, including that Kendall's key bugle. Um, I was able to play the, the, the Bach bugle that, that, that uh, was played at uh, John F. Kennedy's funeral. Mm-hmm. Okay, I played one of Patrick Gilmore's cornets, his gold-plated Con Wonder that was engraved by David Gardner. Uh, I, I played, oh, let's see, played a, played a bunch of uh, famous players' instruments. Played, uh, one of, uh, one of Busy Gillespie's Tilt Belmont Committees, mm-hmm. uh, Art Farmer's Flugelhorns, Bessie Flugelhorn. So most instruments that are attached to notable people are the ones that should, you know, in case-by-case basis, but it, it's the person that determines whether it should be played regularly or not? Well, the, most... the, the, a lot of the important instruments get, get snapped up by museums because they have you know, well-heeled donors mm-hmm. who will, will buy them. Right. Uh, and there are a lot of instruments owned by famous players that are in private collections and sometimes they're you know they're able to get, to get played. Um, I one of the cornet conspiracy members owns uh, Jules Levy's cornet, the cornet that's in a famous picture of him holding it. And mm-hmm. I was able to play on that because he maintains it, keeps it in beautiful condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the see I played instruments uh, owned by Theodore Hoch, Alessandro Liberati, I know, like the twenty-six North Carolina horns are preserved, also. Right, and those those are you know those went through a war and they're in in fairly rough condition. They should be preserved. They should they shouldn't be handled very Mm -hmm. much at all. Um, But then there are you know there are instruments of a more not common but more generic nature, like a lot of the horns that I have. They're by noted makers, but they're not they weren't owned by any one of them import. With a few exceptions, and playing them assures that they'll be properly maintained. Because every time these horns come out of the case, they get oiled and lubricated. You know, the valves get oiled, the slides get lubricated properly, so everything works. Nothing seizes up. Um, occasionally, in a restoration, you'll have to replace broken or damaged original parts, but I, mm-hmm. I keep all of the original parts filed away 
so I know what those what um, you know if a, if a ferrule is cracked could, because all the tubing was made was, was made with seams in mm-hmm. those days. Uh, it was folded over on a mantle pound and down seamed and then drawn through a, a draw plate. And the seams tend to rot out. So replacing split tubing like that on, on a on a uh, or, or other missing parts on a horn that's not really a museum piece doesn't bother me and it assures the instrument will get maintained and the other cool thing about it is that is that you get to hear the sound of history you get mm-hmm. to hear the sound that was being made by our forebears 150 years ago 160 yeah. years ago mm-hmm. this is what my great great grandfather heard you know, when when the band was playing while he was in, in the, in the uh, third uh, uh, Vermont yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so that's that's a really cool thing. It really it, it, it uh, lends reality and immediacy when an audience can hear actual sounds of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Would you yeah. say that the uh, your primary period E flat cornet that you use in gigs would be your your most notable instrument, or your most maybe your most cherished or prized horn that you have? Well, actually, it's one of it's one of my favorite instruments in my collection. Yeah, the the Stratton over the shoulder that I just showed is one of the more important instruments, um, and I I have a few other instruments that are pretty rare and unusual. And I'll get to the, I've got another one over here that I'll show you in a little bit. Um, but the one instrument that I'll die with, okay, that that is the most important piece to me is my great grandfather's, uh, I think it's 1898 or 1896, uh, Con Wonder Cornet, mm. uh, which my cousin gave to me a few years ago. And mm. I had Mark Metzler restore it. It was in beautiful shape. It didn't need much work at all. It plays beautifully. It has all its original bits and pieces, the original case, original mouthpieces, and mute, mm. and so on and so forth. And because of the family connection, it's something I've never part Yeah. Unless I would have handed it down to another family member who, mm-hmm. who was in a position to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. yeah, that's really special. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I know, Stephen, you have a, a usual go-to instrument-related question that I think Oh yeah. I, I think we know the answer to because we, we see it on every horn, but still probably good to get a sound bite regarding it. Right, and that would okay. be that would be original or modern mouthpieces, and I'm assuming your answer is original mouthpieces. Absolutely original. Yeah. Okay, or with a qualification, or faithful copies of an original. Mm. And I mm. say that because the mouthpiece on my on my E flat cornet and on my E flat key bugle, they're both reproductions. They're copies of a Graves and Company mouthpiece. That, that was owned at the time that, that went with a convertible belt front slash over the shoulder, uh, Graves E flat cornet that was owned by Nicky Carlos at the time. I believe it's owned by Steve Ward now. Mm. And when I played it, I liked the mouthpiece so much that I asked Nick if I could, you know, if I could, uh, uh, if he would actually, if he would send it out to Canstall for them to copy it. Canstall mm-hmm. made copies of it. Unfortunately, Canstall's out of business, so you can't get these anymore. But, 
a number of E-flat cornet players, uh, modern uh, Civil War E-flat cornet players, used this uh, copy of the Graves mouthpiece. Otherwise, I am I am very uh, very adamant about playing these instruments on period mouthpieces. Mm-hmm. Um, there are bands that use modern mouthpieces. I've seen over-the-shoulder Strat and flat cornets being played with Schilke 14A4A lead trumpet mouthpieces, and mm-hmm. that does not produce the characteristic sound uh, or intonation of the instrument. It's deleterious to both. Right. Uh, and if you want to play a Civil War instrument, get used to playing a Civil War mouthpiece. That's yeah. how I feel about it, because that gives you the real sound. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What are your thoughts with uh, reproduction horns? Um, fine. Now, if you if you want to play a reproduction horn because you're interested in playing primarily playing music of the period, great. Um, for me, a lot of the fun of playing music is playing it on the original instruments. Mm-hmm. And that said, a reproduction instrument is going to cost you probably as much or more as an original restored instrument. Mm-hmm. Especially these days, with the value of things dropping, you can buy an original instrument. I saw I, I saw a, a seven key B flat bugle go on eBay for nine hundred bucks. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we went for three times that, you know, five or ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rotary cornet, uh, who uh, by Holland Quinby, um, leader's model, you know, small board, a little under four hundred dollars instead of two thousand. Yeah. So mm-hmm. You can get some bargains today mm-hmm. if, you, you know, if you know what you're looking at. Yeah, um, for sure. So reproduction instruments, I, you know, they're, they're fine, but I never really saw the point in them. When there are so many originals out there to be had, um, it's amazing the number that are floating, still floating around and coming out of attics and, and so forth. Yeah. They mm-hmm. come out every week. There's there's a new one, another one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I think the whole point of what we do is to play the period music on the original instrument because that gives the true sound of history mm-hmm. there. Uh, as a professional musician, and you already talked about how you got into 19th century music, Civil, <laughs> Civil War reenacting specifically, do you do any what we would call reenacting or are you purely a, a professional musician showing up for gigs in just a costume? <laughs> um, a little both. Uh, I've, yeah. I've done a, a quite a bit of reenacting with the Federal City Brass Band and, and also some with the with the, uh, the, uh, oh, the the Coates Brass Band, the 47th mm-hmm. Pennsylvania Band. Um, yeah. With those groups, I did both of the, uh, <clears throat> of the 150th Gettysburg reenactments. I started doing reenactments with Federal City in, in two thousand. Two or 2003, we did Cedar Creek and, and a couple of other reenactments over the years. We've done a, a fair number of them, including the, the the end of the Civil War sesquicentennial, the surrender ceremony at the Appomattox Courthouse, where you know, the Civil War units reenacted the, the uh, surrender of Lee and the stacking of Confederate arms. Mm-hmm. We performed for that mm-hmm. as, a, as a union band. Yeah, yeah. Um, Done, done quite a bit of that. I there used to be some reenactments around the Syracuse area, but the hobbies kind of kind of tailed off a bit. But my band, the Celsius band, played for a number of those over the years. There were some in 
Southern Rochester Civil War days, where they'd have skirmishes, you know, not a full-scale battle or reenactment, but they have you know, Civil War history days where they can't bring us in for a concert and so on. So I've done a lot of that, you know, it's kind of a crossover between the two, and then mm-hmm. done a lot of just plain concertizing for concert series and for historical societies and museums, um, even private fundraising things, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the rest of my work. It runs the gamut. Mm-hmm. Right. You mentioned your Excelsior Cornet Band. When when was that group founded? Well, that was uh, that was founded in 2000 from the brass quintet performance I talked about earlier. At gotcha. The, yeah. 2000 uh, Syracuse University Brass Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, we had our first performance on September 2nd, 2000. Gotcha. And uh, then, you know, a week later, everything everything happened. Yeah, the right. World changed. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, but but that group has you know pretty much kept uh, you know, kept working. How many players do you have? Twenty years almost. It's a yeah. it's a eight. I started as seven, and then I decided I needed another E flat cornet player to keep me from completely blowing my chops out. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. hard. Yeah. That's hard work. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, so it's an eight piece group two E flat cornets, one B flat, one E flat alto, one B flat tenor, uh, E flat tuba, snare drum, and bass drum and cymbals. The so bass drum. They're all, all original period. So you have bass drummer doubles on cymbal, yeah, yeah. mounted cymbal on top. Mm-hmm. Right. Very nice. Are they, are the players using all instruments from your collection or is it a band owned or private player owned instruments? Uh, they're using uh, <coughs> almost all instruments from my collection. Snare Drummer mm-hmm. has a lovely uh, Lion and Healy post-Civil War rope tension snare drum. Uh, so he uses that a lot. Sometimes he uses one of my pre-war uh, rope tension drums. Mm-hmm. Um, the other E-flat cornet player, Lee Turner, owns his own instruments. He has a B-flat key bugle. He has a B-flat rotary uh, side-action cornet and E-flat uh, rotary side-action cornet that he uses. I believe his is a Holland Quimby also. But the rest of the instruments are from my collection, and I built the collection around the needs of the, of the Excelsior. Mm. Gotcha. And do you do you push period mouthpieces on those players too, or do you let them play Absolutely. what they're comfortable with? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But I've got a you know I've got two or three big mouthpiece cases filled with mouthpieces that I've acquired over the years. So you know I, I let them play around with those and figure out which one works right best for them. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. And what's the what's the visual presentation of the band? Or I guess it probably varies, you know, depending on what kind of gig you're doing. Because um, I, I think you said you do a mix or have done a mix of kind of the more reenactment stuff and then concertizing. Do you always wear uh, like a period uniform, or do you do some stuff, you know, just in your normal concert <laughs> flag or whatever? Uh, no, we we always wear the uh, the period uniforms. Um, gotcha. I, Based the uniform on a New York City uh, uh, militia infantry unit, mm-hmm. um, short New York State jacket, uh, eight butt jacket with with, uh, with uh, red cuff flashes, red cappy uh, uh, hats uh, with New York State uh, hat brass on them, New York State buckles uh, from the late eighteen fifties, and otherwise you know, standard union. Trousers and shoes and accoutrements and so on. And right. we always perform in 
in that uniform. Yeah. As, as a New York State militia leader, the the impression that we that that we that we put on is that we are a small town band, just a small eight piece band, as opposed to you know a twelve or sixteen piece. Mm-hmm. We were a small town band that joined up with its local militia regiment. Gotcha. Those bands could be as small. I've seen pictures as small as you know, seven or eight pieces. So mm-hmm. that's and yeah. I also designed the uniforms to avoid the, the, the uh, inter-unit politics of various reacting units. There, there were there were several sort of rival units in my area, and you know, I didn't want to be strictly associated with one or the other. Um, to to you know just to avoid being in the middle of the. Mm-hmm. So I decided we'd be completely independent and go where the winds blew us. That's, yeah. That's awesome. It's uh, similar, I guess, to what Federal City is doing, right? Kind of like a generic uh, yeah. union band, essentially. Exactly. Band, yeah. band. Federal yeah. City, we, we're a generic union band. Um, and also we, you know, we, we have reenacted as the 26 North Carolina band as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. The reason I bought this... Uh, I bought this side action uh, E flat was so that I could portray Sam Mickey in the 26 North Carolina. Mm, there you go. With wow. the political climate the way it is, anything Confederate is is uh, non grata at the moment. So I don't think the 26 North Carolina is going to be doing very many performances, unfortunately, which is too mm-hmm. bad because it's, it's, it's a great impression and music is wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. But those are the times we live in. Yeah. yeah. Right. Do you, right. Do you have a most memorable performance or a performance with your particular group, Excelsior, that you're most proud of? Let me think about that. So I think totally could be completely different, but I think uh, you were involved recently with Eric Totman, right? For a, a pretty uh, special. In performance. fact, I was going to bring that one up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Eric, Eric has uh, the largest private holding of Schreiber horns mm-hmm. and there's a little village kind of northeast of Syracuse near Watertown called Copenhagen. <laughs> and the the village still has uh, the original bandwagon, horse-drawn bandwagon of the J.H. Raymond Cornet Band, which was equipped entirely with Schreiber horns. Mm-hmm. So uh, Eric uh, made arrangements with the with the, the, uh, the, the, the town to participate in their sesquicentennial, which was, which was what, uh, last summer. So I think he, he had their last. bass drum originally, right? He actually had purchased their original yeah. bass drum. Yeah, that's <laughs> crazy. And, you know, for all I know, the, I mean, I have a Schreiber horn right here. Uh, you, can, you can see that it's a pretty unusual instrument. It's teardrop yeah. shaped. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, lovely playing instrument. What voice is that? This is a, is a uh, B-flat baritone. Gotcha. <laughs> Thank you. 
really sounding instrument. Yeah, um, Anyway, Derek had a complete had a complete set of these, and his and mine and with his bass drum and my snare drum and the Excelsior Cornet band members, we recreated the J.H. Raymond band and rode on the original horse-drawn uh, bandwagon in the parade through town, and then performed a concert on the bandstand mm-hmm. with. Uh, typical music that the Raymond band probably would have played. It was a, it was a marvelous experience. Yeah. The uniforms for that, we actually we kind of cobbed up civilian uniforms. We used our uh, our our, uh, uh, our sky blue pants, you know, Civil War pants, and our our, our shoes, Civil War uh, brogans, and then uh, uh, white tuxedo shirts. You know, we could pleated shirts like that were very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, big string ties. Uh, Double-breasted black vests and and uh, single-breasted coats and then uh, caps that that were fireman style caps that were typical for the period. And I think we presented a pretty good impression as a as a nineteenth-century uh, civilian band, mm-hmm. um, which is something that not a lot of groups do because the civilian clothing is is much less standardized, and mm. expensive for a second impression or a third impression. For a band. It's very right. pricey. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of pictures uh, from that um, that gig up on our mm-hmm. website in the show notes for actually for Eric's episode when we had interviewed him. I think he was in the first round of 10 maybe yes. interviews that we did. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So if you're still listening at this point, go <laughs> if you want to see any pictures of, of the gig that uh, Jeff's talking about. Those are up on the website uh, in Eric's episode's show notes. But yeah, yeah that, that, was, that seemed that was... like a really cool experience yeah but, yeah that was one of the most memorable gigs that that uh, we've had uh in quite a while mm-hmm. you know, we've had some others that were really great playing playing in maine and playing uh playing in at, uh, new hampshire and uh, oh let's see we played actually we, we played in new york city for a for an insurance company convention mm-hmm. they they had a skit about the founding of the company in, in the 1860s. It, it was founded as the Germania Insurance Company, and they wanted a Civil War band because that was what was playing you know, at the time. <laughs> so we provided incidental music for their for their little show. Blast! We got to hang out in Manhattan for a while. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Not bad. You play any Charles Ives? I guess that's a little later, but. <laughs> insurance company gig yeah 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 a little charles ives we played two different marches at the same time yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. actually as, a, as an aside um it was just discovered that that george ives uh schreiber cornet okay which is uh, a different design from the from the, the teardrop instruments and eric owns one of these also it's a figure eight cornet the tubing kind of is in a figure eight and then mm-hmm. it goes up out the bell. Mm, um, right. yeah. There's only a handful of those known and Charles Ives had a four valve one in, in B flat and A and it's actually in, in, or, in pardon me, George Ives had one. It's in, in the Charles Ives Museum. Oh, wow. And that was only recently, you know, recently identified as a, as a Schreiber and it's, I think, one of only four, you know, four known or something like that. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. If you want more in, uh, info on that instrument, on that that kind of instrument, Rob Stewart owns one, I believe, and has on his website a uh, a, a very nice page about mm-hmm. it. It's, it's uh, under his uh, his uh, online museum mm-hmm. under I think Rotary Valve Cornets. 
Okay. Let's see the, the uh, Schreiber figure eight on that. Awesome. This has been really, really cool. I think uh, maybe one of the, the last things to finish up with the Excelsior group, <clears throat> we know you have a recording that you produced, Cheer Boys Cheer. Yes. Uh, great recording, a lot of really good music, really fine playing on oh, it. thank is, you. Is, any, uh, I don't know, any stories or, or any information associated with that particular <laughs> recording project that you'd like to share? <laughs> uh, yes, it's available uh, $15 postpaid. Um, <laughs> um, actually, yeah, that, that was an interesting project. Um, it, we recorded it in the band room of Bishop Ludden Junior Senior High School, which is where our, uh, our tuba player, Al Thompson, teaches. Mm-hmm. And we had a re- remote recording set up, uh, Subcat Studios from Syracuse. Great uh, recording studio, does a lot of marvelous work. Uh, they brought in a, a full uh, remote setup. And I augmented the band with additional players. So I think we had a, you know, like a 12 piece band. I think we had eight brass or, or 10, I think 10 brass and two percussions. So we had all the parts doubled. Mm-hmm. And gotcha. uh, so they set up the recording. We recorded all morning. We did like three and a half hours, got some great takes. We went and took, broke for lunch, came back in an hour. And, and, and uh, uh, the recording engineer sadly informed us that their hard drive crash and we lost everything that we recorded the entire morning so with our so with our beat up chops we had to go back and re-record everything in the morning and then we had to do another session i think to to get the second half of the yeah. Oh, yeah. As soon as you said yeah. that you guys broke for lunch, I kind of anticipated you, where that was you going. Knew where that was going, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's not a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. but, it was like the long faces on, on the on the engineers, like, um, "You're not gonna like this." Yeah. yeah. Imagine the stress that that guy felt when you guys were all trickling back in. You know. Oh <laughs> yeah. Oh having yeah. To, having to drop the shoe on you. Yeah, but but we got a good we got a good record out of it. And yeah, yeah, it turned out great. I, you know, I was very happy with that. It turned out. Definitely, I know. And we've I sold know a lot of them. You know, we've recorded it mainly as a as a, a documentation of the band mm-hmm. and as uh, merch to sell at gigs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and the the sales of that CD have financed the purchase and restoration of quite a few of our instruments. Awesome. We actually, we're we're well into the second thousand of those CDs. Oh wow! Yeah, so between promotion, you know, giving them away for promotion and selling, you know, we've probably probably gone through about hmm, thirteen or fourteen hundred of those CDs, which is yeah, pretty good yeah. for a Civil War band. Yeah, so, no, that's fantastic. Yeah. And and it also won the two thousand and four Sammy Award for uh, best recording other styles here, the Syracuse Area Music Awards. Oh, oh wow! Very nice. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. It's phenomenal. Do you, I know that amidst the uh, pandemic and stuff, you know, everything's on hold, but are there any prospects of, of doing a, another recording with the band, or is that kind of a one-time thing for you guys? I, I think it was a one-time thing. Um, there's so much music we could record, you know, 50 albums. You know, we have resources. Um, but I think that, that if I do another recording, if and when I do another recording, and this is still in the very much in, in the nebulous stage, um, I think I'm going to do a jazz French horn record. Yeah, nice. Because I do have a jazz French horn group <clears throat> that plays classic jazz that used French horn. You know, like hmm. for the cool Miles Davis, John uh, Elliott stuff from 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 uh, Julius Watkins, like Blake Heath's sextet. Um, mm-hmm. 
Don Ellis, I think, had some French horns in it. <laughs> uh, he did, yeah. And, the, and uh, let's see, there was a mellophonist by the name of Don Elliott, who should be way better known because he was the first guy who made a fortune using multi-track recording. Hmm. Marvelous. Marvelous. Trumpet, mellophone, and vibraphone player. Interesting. Brilliant player. And I own the only, as far as I know, the only reverse bell con Don Elliott mellophone in private hands, other than this family. Oh, wow. So we do some, you know, we do we do a, a, a an arrangement uh, that I actually that I, I transcribed off of YouTube that uh, that has uh, playing mellophone. So mm. we do that. We do some stuff uh, by Johnny Grass. He's the, you know, the great LA uh, jazz horn player, brilliant player. I actually own one of Johnny Grass's French horns mm. in my collection. No, oh, well. so uh, we do some of that. So um, it'll probably be a jazz French horn. Very cool. That's kind of been my other stock in trade ever since high school. It's been one of the very few jazz French horn players. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to document that. Yeah. I'm too old to play jazz French horn anymore. It's kind of interesting because, like, Euphonium's kind of in a similar boat. You know, we, mm-hmm. we've, we've been fortunate, mm-hmm. you know, to have a few names, you know, in our, right. in our wheelhouse that have become known, but it's still, you know, not popularly regarded as a jazz instrument. Or anything. Well, but, well, what's what's the old joke? Uh, 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 the definition of an optimist is a euphonium player with a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's very true. Don't, don't don't be offended. I, oh no, uh, we're not. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> why we you started. Say a, a jazz French horn player, <laughs> a jazz French horn player with a mortgage. So, yeah, exactly. Oh, we're two euphonium players that started a, a band and a podcast. So, so we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we know full well what we got ourselves into here. <laughs> so, yeah. Eyes wide open, man. Right. Yeah, for sure. Something that, that Stephen and I are, are really hopeful with this project, with the, the podcast and the YouTube channel that we're trying to do is, you know, all trying to, to build this early American brass band community, you know, the players within it, the the collectors, the historians, the teachers, but then also provide kind of the, the, you know, with this being in the audio format, you know, the medium podcasts are so popular, just being a, an easy access point for education for people trying to get into it also. Yes. And we know that through your music and musket presentation, uh, that that you're very much in the same wheelhouse of, of this area of education. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how, how that came to be and, and what that is? Well, uh, that kind of came about from people and organizations asking me if I could do the something like the Excelsior program only at much lower expense. Mm-hmm. And, and since I'd done presentations and programs on, you know, the development of brass instruments, the history history of the instruments, things like that, I said I thought to myself, yeah, I could probably put together a you know a pretty comprehensive uh, educational program uh, that gives background on Civil War music and musicians, the instruments, the use of, of like drums and bugles for field music, how, you know, how a soldier went through his day, uh, what musicians did, the stuff that they carried, the music they played, the instruments they used, and then, you know, tell some of the stories 
uh, about uh, about the music. Like I tell, I tell the story of, of, uh, of the, the creation of taps. Um, basically, it's what Yari always uh, always presents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I fit it into a you know, into a fairly encapsulized uh, format, mm. and I've written you know written this program so that it so that it takes up approximately one uh, school period. You know, I can I can depending on what I I put in take out of it, I can, I can make it go you know, make it anywhere from. 40 minutes to, to, to an hour and a quarter, mm. depending on, on what the client wants. And I've done it for a mm-hmm. lot of schools over the years. I've done it for, for uh, quite a few historical societies and, and so on. Um, I do it in this area in conjunction with Larry Levender's uh, Central New York Jazz Arts Foundation. That's mm-hmm. one of their educational programs. So we put it into, mm-hmm. into the, the Late elementary, junior high, and sometimes high school uh, student body through uh, CNY Jazz, and mm-hmm. part of the part of the beauty of that is that it's BOCES reimbursable or part of the mm-hmm. cost. Yeah, so, yeah. so uh, board of cooperative uh, board of cooperative education services will uh, co-sponsor the performances. So it makes it a really uh, cost-effective way to give a living history experience to students. Because mm-hmm. this is stuff that they've never been exposed to, they've never seen. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, uh, if I can open the eyes of even just a few of the kids in each of those audiences and pique a little bit of interest, it might send them in a whole new direction. Mm-hmm. It might, it might uh, spark a lifelong interest in history, or in the Civil War, or, or in you know other other avenues of music. Who knows? Yeah, How it's going to touch someone. Yeah, but definitely. it it. Uh, I found it to be very rewarding in that way. Um, after after each show, we always have kids who want to come up and look at the instruments and, mm-hmm. and have questions about the instruments and, and the accoutrements of the gear. Because I, you know, I bring a full uh, a full uh, kit of everything that the bandsmen will carry. Yeah, uh, they you know they want to see the musician's sword. They want to see you know the, the hard tack. Want to see the, the instruments? They, they want to want to play on the snare drum and all that. So I let them do that. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, anything anything to reach the kids and touch them and draw out uh, the the uh, an interest in history and uh, our past. I, I think is very valuable. So that's how I design the program. Yeah. yeah, hopefully it does. Right. Our, the band that Steven and I play in, we did our first like elementary program, I guess mm. in f- February, like two or three weeks before the world shut down. <laughs> and, but we did our first one then. And yeah, it's exactly what you said. It was really adorable and rewarding seeing at the end, you know, all the, the kids come up and, you know, every member of the band was sworn by a handful of kids just to ask questions, you know, at the end. Oh, yeah. So, so it's, it's, yeah, it was really special. Well, uh, part of what, you know, part of what uh, inspired that too was that at the at the Excelsior Cornet Band concerts, we'll start out, and and uh, I got this actually from Federal City, we start out most of the time with a show and tell. You know, ten, you know, it's about eight or ten minutes before the downbeat, 
the band just walks out into the audience and walks around as people are being seated and they, they, uh, ask if anyone has questions about the instruments or uniforms and they explain the, the instrument that they're playing and they explain, you know, the uniform or anything else that, that people, that people want to know about prior to the concert. And it, it piques people's interest. It gets them engaged prior to the first note. Yeah. yeah that's a good idea. And, and that interaction kind of also inspired the, the music and musket program, you know, to have that two way like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, awesome. we've said it before that we feel that, you know, this, this part of American music history, you know, isn't really taught that much, especially at, you know, the college and university no. level. So really, I mean, like Chris said, I mean, that's one of the main goals of the show is just to get some of this information out there for maybe people to stumble across. Right. But really, I mean, it's programs like that, that, really do the bulk of the work when it comes to educating people about a period of history, not only in the United States, but just the United States or American music history that mm-hmm. really elsewhere is not mentioned right. really at all. Well, that's, that's one of, one of my, you know, one of my gripes about when I was in music school, we, we learned the standard European centered uh, uh, curriculum. Well, it was all Eurocentric exactly. and, and uh, American Brass band music, American, it was American popular music of the 19th century yeah. was mm-hmm. basically, uh, basically looked upon as unimportant. It right. wasn't worth right. studying. And, yeah. and once I started delving into it, I just I couldn't understand that attitude because, you know, 19th century music is what made 20th century music and 21st yeah. century music what it is. There's a there's a progression straight through from the introduction of the key bugle in, in 1810 through through the development of the American brass band movement to the development of early proto jazz. There's actually a there's actually a quote and I wish I could find it again. I found it online somewhere, but it was a quote from a letter written home by a Civil War soldier saying that he did not like the music in General Polk's army and of his brigade band because they played jazz music. Huh. This was in about 1863 or 64. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the, it probably had the, 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 uh, the unsavory connotation of the word jazz in the, you know, the mid 19th century, uh, colloquial yeah, yeah. way rather than right. how we, you know, we consider the, you know, to be the American art form. You know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, but you know, it was it, it was uh, it was uh, music of houses of ill repute. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, but there's a straight line from there through the early uh, proto jazz, uh, post Civil War New Orleans, uh, you know, melding with the blues up through. Ragtime through Buddy Bolden through Louis Armstrong and then straight up to you know to today's players. There's a there's a direct line from that yeah, right, right through all of American music and it was completely ignored until we got to you know, to the point where jazz was being taken seriously in music schools. Yeah. And that didn't happen until the seventies. Yeah, well even with that, it's like jazz history is usually its own course. It's like when you're going through mm-hmm. like the four semesters 
of music history in college, you know, the, in the fourth semester, well, maybe at the end of the third semester, you're talking, uh, you know, getting into the 20th century. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get like a paragraph on Sousa, maybe a paragraph that jazz exists, but it's its own offshoot. And like essentially American music started Mm -hmm. with Copeland, right? It's kind of like what a lot of music history courses kind of teaches the beginning of American serious music. You know, and in, and in the meanwhile, you know, uh, you, have you talked to Mike O'Connor? Have you interviewed him? Yeah, yeah, we, we yeah. had okay. Mike O'Connor. Okay, you, you're aware of of how how great an importance he puts on American popular music, and you know, popular music in general, British Invasion, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pop music is the engine that drives music. And yeah. Classical music, great though it is. Quite frankly, it's a relatively small segment of the world of music, mm-hmm. European classical music. So, you know, I, I, I always found it strange that, you know, that jazz was ignored, that, that, that uh, 19th century band music was ignored, because that was a hugely, hugely popular movement. It was as big as anything today. Jules Levy made, you know, made Sometimes he, he made ten thousand dollars a week as a soloist. Yeah, okay, yeah, in yeah. the eighteen eighties and nineties. <laughs> okay, yeah. so so he was a rock star. Yeah, these guys were rock stars. Yeah, and they made gobs of money, and they were popular. They couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed. Okay, mm-hmm. so they you know they were the Beatles, you know, a hundred years earlier. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. Ig- ignoring that just seemed to be counterproductive to me. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that it's getting some some exposure here. You guys. You guys are doing it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well done. Thanks, yeah. Anything that expands the breadth of people's understanding, anything mm-hmm. that expands the 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 their, not the knowledge base, that expands their understanding of of the who, the when, the, the how, and the why of of every form of music is beneficial because. There's there's so many important figures who are, who are completely have been completely ignored. Um, how many people know who Francis Johnson was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's what for a long time been my contention that in music classes in school in in, in public schools every kid, no matter what race, color, whatever, should learn about. Francis Johnson, yeah, being the, the first African American music star, he was yeah. a superstar. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. I know I gained a tremendous amount of inspiration learning about Francis Johnson, and I can only imagine, you know, what some kid in a poor city school who doesn't have anything to look forward to except maybe becoming a rapper might gather, might learn from learning about Francis Johnson. Yeah. 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 How he overcame, you know? Yeah, yeah. How, how he, sure. he, he climbed to the pinnacle of success in an era where it was even more difficult than it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that, that learning about this movement will, you know, would help a lot of people put things in a, in a great in, in a much more deep perspective hmm. definitely yeah i agree yeah. 
Well, this has been this has been fantastic. Thanks for taking the time to to sit down and, and talk with us. And we'd love to have you back uh, to talk about any number of things. But in the meantime, where can people go uh, to find out more about you and your uh, your group, the Excelsior Cornet Band, and, and all that good stuff? Well, uh, there is uh, the Excelsior Cornet Band website is www.ecband.com or excelsiorcornetband.com, which is harder to spell. <laughs> um, for, for me, you can you can, uh, can uh, go to jeffstockham.com, and that's stockham, not a canned ham, not a smoked ham, just a plain old stockham. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then there is uh, then there is musicandmusket.com. Uh, I think that that's that those are the only active websites that I have uh, gotcha. at the moment. So uh, anything you. you know, Want to know uh, more information that you could possibly want to know on websites? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Feel free to visit. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. It was a pleasure to finally get to talk to you. You know, through through Zoom, we've been messaging for for months, so it was great to you know officially meet you virtually this way. <laughs> yeah. Well, the pleasure was really mine. I, I, I really appreciate your having me on, and I look forward to being able to uh, do it again. Yeah. Awesome. That'd be great. great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you again so much to Jeff Stockham for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. Uh, as we mentioned before, we've been in touch with Jeff for, for a long time now, and it was really exciting to finally get to talk to him and pick his brain about his vast knowledge and experiences in the music world in general, not even just with Early American Brass Band stuff. So thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Yeah, definitely. I, it was great to talk to him. Um, you know, like I said, I've been talking to him for a while and his name's come up a bunch. So, uh, it was great to, uh, like I said in the intro, <laughs> I'm just repeating myself, but it, it really truly was great to get him on the show. Yeah. And we're adding to the, uh, the Mark Elrod drinking game. Every episode, whenever <laughs> somebody mentions Mark Elrod, you have to take a drink. So it, right. uh, you should be feeling pretty good after this episode. Also, yeah. Yeah. Playing that game at home. Yeah. Pick, <laughs> pick a weaker beer or something, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing, uh, you know, as always, there are plenty of ways you can support the show, uh, share it with a friend, family member, all that good stuff, rate review. Um, and we've got Patreon and Teespring. If you want to, uh, drink your morning coffee out of a mug with the logo on it or what have you, uh, you can now do that. Um, and we'll have links for all that stuff on our website which you know by now has all sorts of uh, great information on it. So we hope you'll check all that stuff out. This episode's featured album is by the Excelsior Cornet Band. It's Cheer Boys Cheer, the album that Jeff was talking about uh, towards the, the end of the episode here. So we'll include information to the Excelsior Cornet's band's recording and where you can get it and a little bit of extra information on it in our show notes. That can be found on our website at eabbpodcast.com. And we look forward to seeing you again next episode. Take care. Mm -hmm.